Morning, church. If you're a guest, and I met several guests this morning, a lot of fun doing that. Special welcome to you. My name's Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here. I hope you're having a good MLK weekend. MLK's birthday is January 15th, third uh, Monday of every January, set aside by the federal government to celebrate, to remember him as the primary or chief spokesperson for the civil rights movement in America. As you may know, MLK was a Baptist minister. He drew much of his inspiration for the civil rights movement from scripture. For example, his vision for racial integration was taken directly from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. John's vision in particular of the throne of God, it's on the screen, Revelation chapter seven. After this, I looked, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne, and before the Lamb of God. It's interesting to consider John's glimpse of heaven, Revelation chapter seven, and the multi-ethnic reality of heaven against the ongoing racial turmoil in America. Especially, it's interesting to consider, when we know that historically, America has been one of the more thoroughly churched nations in the world. That's not the first time Revelation seven's been read publicly in America. For example, I know that most remember 2020 as the year COVID arrived and quarantine became a way of life. But it was also a year of tremendous racial unrest in America, the likes of which some hadn't said hadn't been seen since the 1960s civil rights era. In fact, that was my mother's perspective on the summer of 2020. Wow, I haven't seen this since the 60s. There were peaceful protests and marches all across the nation in 2020. Perhaps like me, you participated in some of those peaceful marches. Sadly, there were also violent riots in some cities. As yet another generation of Americans wrestled with not only the historic legacy of slavery in America, but with the ongoing struggles that people of color face in our nation. This this reality of ongoing struggles for people of color was highlighted in events like Ahmaud Arbery's murder, February, 2020. A 25-year-old black man, Ahmaud was jogging through a predominantly white neighborhood, a residential area, when three white men tried to arrest him, so they said. They shot him to death in the process, which raised all types of questions about racial vigilantism in the deep South, which many people thought had faded away. Then there was George Floyd's impossibly agonizing struggle to breathe while trapped under the knee of a Minneapolis policeman, May 2020. Hundreds of thousands of Americans watched the videos of him pleading for air and the slogan, I can't breathe captured the feelings of many on the issues of race ongoing in America. As a pastor, I found myself struggling personally, processing. I found myself struggling vocationally as a shepherd because of the turmoil of 2020. Disappointed by the ongoing racial divisions, I found myself reflecting on John's vision of the reality before the throne of God this morning, of every nation and tribe and people and language gathered, a multitude that cannot be counted. 
I found myself longing for the church to play the role that it's designed to play as the pillar and foundation of truth in the world. As a pastor, I was regularly being asked questions like, why doesn't the Bible flatly condemn slavery? Where in the Bible can we find a clear statement against racism? I remember receiving phone calls, not one, but a couple from people in the community, people that don't call this this church their home church, but wanting to know, wanting to know our official position on racism. Who are we as a community of faith? Wanting to know about our take on Black Lives Matter, the organization, as well as the slogan. I did my best on those phone calls to represent us as a community that certainly stands against racism. But having to admit, we don't have a position paper on it. We haven't taken the time to write it down, spell it out. Throughout 2020, I was in dialogue with pastors in the county, asking how they're responding to the racial unrest, how their church is participating in the marches. How are you getting involved? I was asking, do you guys have position papers? And they were sharing their positions in writing. I was doing my best to learn and lead week to week. It was during this time that I proposed to the elders that we begin reading and studying together and that we consider writing a paper that outlines our position on racial equality, justice, and unity. The elders have a history of doing this type of work together in order to shepherd God's flock well. And it seemed to us that the unique nature of the cultural moment warranted that type of effort. As a result, in September of 2020, the elders entered a season of reading together and discussing matters of race, which we've been doing now for the better part of 16 months. We read together books like White Awake, authored by Daniel Hill, a pastor who leads a multicultural congregation of believers at River City Community Church in the Humble Park neighborhood of Chicago. Sherry and I visited this church during the summer. Last summer during my sabbatical, the vision of this church is for social and spiritual renewal in the city. And in that effort, they work for justice and unity in their sphere of influence. We'd highly recommend this book as a board for anyone wanting a pastoral reflection on the issues of race. Pastor Hill lays out a framework for understanding cultural identity and the needed growth to move forward for the American church. We also read together, Be the Bridge. We'd recommend this book as well to anyone wanting an honest reflection on the black experience within the white church. As a black woman, Latasha Morrison served on staff at a majority culture church in Texas and offers a personal reflection on racism in America as well as in the church. And she provides a call to unity. She offers practical steps in that journey. I know that several congregants of Glowing Bible Church have already been reading and discussing this book as our women's ministry leadership team has been leading book discussions around this book for well over a year now. Obviously, the elders coupled our discussion over the last 16 months with a thorough study of scripture as well as prayer. And this morning, I'd like to begin a short sermon series titled, The Beautiful Bride, God's multi-ethnic vision for the church or for the kingdom or for heaven. 
We're putting the finishing touches on a position paper on this topic. We'll make that available this coming week online at our website, along with the resources that the elders have availed themselves of. It's our hope that this short series, just three weeks in length, will help chart the course uh, going forward for Glenelg Bible Church, as well as celebrate the multi-ethnic nature of the church. With that as the goal, turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Luke chapter 10. Whenever I approach a hot theological topic or wade into the waters of a difficult issue, I want to know first and foremost, did Christ our savior address this during his three short years on the earth? What did Christ have to say on this topic, if anything? Then I'll next ask myself, how did the early church handle this? What, if anything, did Paul or John? So I'll, I'll usually go from the gospels into the book of Acts, early church, and then, and then ask about the epistles. Paul, Peter, how did they handle it? This morning, I want to read a well-known story that I believe clearly is Christ's effort to identify the multi-ethnic nature of heaven. As you're turning there, I wanna encourage you to consider listening to the Next Level podcast over the next couple of weeks. If you're not already a regular listener, every Monday morning we sit down, do our best to answer the questions you, you submit using the number on the screen. Uh, so you can text your questions into that number. It's also in the bulletin that you can walk out with this morning should a question occur to you later in the week. We can't possibly touch on all issues regarding civil rights in three sermons. So the podcast is going to be an essential part of working through the theology on a difficult topic and the vision going forward for Glenn Bible Church. You can listen to the podcast by going to wherever you get your podcasts, searching Glen Ellen Bible Church, the Next Level podcast will pop right up. I also wanna invite you to a uh, Next Level Discussions, what we're calling it, on January 23rd in the afternoon, four o'clock. Um, the elders are gonna lead the discussion. Uh, if you need childcare, it'll be provided. For childcare though, you just need to go online and register. Okay. Follow along as I read a story that Jesus told about the multi-ethnic nature of heaven. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now there's a perilous uh, posture to strike, gonna test Jesus, all right? Expert in the law means he was a highly devout Jew who knew the Torah backwards and forwards. He was an expert in the Decalogue and its application to life, the 10 commandments. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus takes the expert of the law and he points him toward the law. What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with your soul and with your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is Deuteronomy in numbers pulled together in kind of a, uh, a summary statement of, of how we inherit eternal life. You've answered correctly, you're spot on, Jesus said. Do this, you're gonna live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked a follow-up question. He's gonna take it to the next level. And who is my neighbor? Second question, right? Two questions here. Here's the second one. In reply, Jesus tells a beloved story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho 
when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened, by, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side, neither guys stopped to help. After first service, somebody came up to me, Mark Macaluso, and he says, it's like the senior pastor doesn't bother to help and the elders don't bother to help. I said, right, Mark, Mark's an elder. I was an elder recently, so. But a Samaritan, shifting gears here. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. So he had an emotive response. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, again, this is a well-known story, possibly one of the best-known stories that Christ ever told. The takeaway from this story is often simply for us to be good neighbors. In fact, as a result of this story, most states in the union have what are called Good Samaritan laws. You're probably familiar with these laws. They're aimed at protecting bystanders or first responders in the event that they stop to help somebody who's been victimized and it goes poorly. So it protects first responders from liability. So being a good neighbor is an appropriate takeaway from this story. The question I want to put to us this morning is, why isn't it appropriate takeaway? Why is being a good neighbor the appropriate point of application still 21 centuries after Christ taught this story? In other words, is Jesus teaching here a simple moralism, an ethic, to be neighborly and you'll get into heaven. Is that all that's going on here? Is that even primarily what's going on here? Because that reality, a moralism, highly complicates, is actually in the face of the gospel as we understand it from the entirety of scripture. That is, we're saved by grace through faith apart from anything we do so that no one can boast. So what's going on here? What are we to learn here about the gospel and about the realities of heaven? Is there something going on here, perhaps, by which we can learn about the heart of God as well as the demographics of heaven? And I would say yes. To fully understand Jesus' teaching here, we must understand the relationships between Jews and Samaritans of the first century. It's true that being a good neighbor is an appropriate takeaway from this story, but much more is going on here than moralism. Something's going on here that has to do with a Levite and a priest acting selfishly and a Samaritan acting heroically. What are we to make of all that? 
The short of it is that Jesus's selection of a Samaritan as the hero of this story is not coincidental. And it speaks volumes because the last person that a Jewish religious expert would expect to act neighborly would have been a Samaritan. The Samaritan is positioned by Jesus as inheriting eternal life, while neither the priest nor the Levite do so. Two men who would have been recognized as both highly moral, devout, committed to the law, wanting to honor God, knowing the law thoroughly, they miss out. Yet the Samaritan is welcomed in to heaven. This would have stunned, certainly the the first century Jewish expert in the law, he would have been stunned. He's so stunned, in fact, he can't even bring himself to answer the question directly. Which of these acted as a neighbor? He can't say the Samaritan. He can't physically bring himself to say it. He says, well, the guy that was merciful. This would have stunned first century listeners. This would have been absolutely scandalous for Jesus to tell this story. It would have upended all cultural expectations because Samaritans were viewed by Jews as racially inferior. Don't miss this. Jesus was addressing first century racial relationships in telling this story. Is that all he's addressing? No, certainly not. But it is most certainly a part of what he's addressing. Just follow closely the Q&A, the questions that are being asked and the answers that are being given. The first question asked by the legal expert is what must I do to inherit eternal life? To this question, Jesus directs the teacher back to the law. You know the law, you give me the answer. How do you read it? What does it say? Then he quotes Deuteronomy and Numbers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this, you're spot on. You know the law, do that, and you will have life. Then a second question is asked. Who's my neighbor? Who must I love as myself? What are the boundaries to the expectations of God on me so that I can get into the kingdom of heaven? To answer this question, Jesus tells the story of a Samaritan hero. In defining neighbor, in identifying who we must love as ourselves, Jesus presses on the bruise of racial tensions in first century Israel, sending a clear signal that we must love everyone on earth, everyone on earth as we love ourselves. Don't miss this. The expert in the law is asking for clarity. Luke says wanting to justify himself. So a glimpse, wanting to understand specifically who, who really do I have to love? What are the boundaries here? He's a legal expert. What are the boundaries here? And Jesus raises a concrete, a very specific example. I'll give you an example of the limitless nature of neighborly love shown by those who spend an eternity around the throne of God. 
I'll give you some cultural background, which might help you understand further. Samaritans, as I mentioned, were viewed as racially inferior to Jews. They were viewed this way because they had a mixed lineage. Samaritans were the descendants of Jews who had intermarried with Assyrians because of the disobedience of Israel to God's uh, commands, God allowed Assyria to overrun the promised land, 722 BC. As they make their way into the promised land, the Assyrians deport some Jews and import Assyrians, part of conquest. In that mingling of the races, some are in that mingling of geography, some Jews intermarried with the Assyrians they became the Samaritan population. They had half Jewish, half foreigner in their genealogical tree. So much so, there was so much tension around this ethnic issue of intermarriage that Jews and Samaritans wouldn't talk to one another. Maybe you remember the famous story of the woman at the well, when Jesus insists on actually walking through Samaria Jews actually skirted Samaria in their travels. Jesus wants to walk right through Samaria. He talks to the woman at the well. She's like, why are you talking to me? This isn't done. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. To say that there was tension between Jews and Samaritans doesn't capture the reality. It doesn't adequately describe what was going on. For example, Josephus, a first century historian, recorded several instances of ethnic cleansing. That is, Jews lashing out at Samaritans and killing them, murdering them. And sometimes in retaliation for Samaritans attacking and killing Jews. Samaritans and Jews would, would act out on this racial hatred. This wasn't simply ideological. In fact, in 51 AD, about the time the church is getting off the ground, you'll hear more about the integration of every nation, tribe, and language, and people group in the early church in the weeks ahead. But in 51 AD, Josephus reports that an entire city of Samaritans was wiped out by a mob of Jews in retaliation for Jews who had been killed by Samaritans. And that wasn't enough to kill the entire village. They then burned it to the ground. They raised it. Make no mistake, this type of animosity was not a fringe position either. This wasn't a position, this animosity held by radicals. This type of animosity was the norm. I'll give you another example, which is fairly arresting if you're familiar with the gospel, uh, thoroughly familiar with the gospels. So within the back of your mind in 51 AD, Jews attack a Samaritan village there in uh, Israel uh, proper, not far from Jerusalem, as a matter of fact, kill everyone in the village and then burn it to the ground. With that in the back of your mind, when James and John, the sons of Zebedee, two of Jesus' disciples in Luke chapter nine, report how frustrated they are that Jesus is not received by a Samaritan village, their suggestion in retaliation is let us call down fire from heaven on this Samaritan village. It paints that in a whole new light, doesn't it? That wasn't rhetoric. They were saying, let's smite, call fire from heaven. 
down on this village. Do away with these Samaritans. They're not worth living, saving. That's Luke 9. In Luke 10, we ought not think that the gospel narratives are pieced together without uh, purpose. Luke 9, call down fire from heaven, James and John, on the Samaritan village. Luke 10, Jesus pictures a Samaritan as the hero, the one who enters eternal life. There's no escaping the conclusion that Jesus wants to address racial tensions in Israel. Jesus is saying that heaven won't simply be populated by Israelites. He's saying that heaven will be populated by those who love people from every nation and tribe and language group. Do we love people as we love ourselves? There's, that's a difficult measure. This means that if Jesus had been in Rwanda in 1994 and a Hutu tribal member had come up to him to test him and ask, how, must I, how can I inherit eternal life? And oh, well, who, who's my neighbor? Jesus would have made a Tutsi the hero of the story. And if Jesus had been in Cambodia in the 1970s and the Khmer people who were running the country had come up to him and said, who is my neighbor? How can I inherit eternal life? And who is my neighbor? Jesus would have made the intellectuals of Cambodia the hero of the story or the Cham Muslims, C-H-A-M, I'm not sure I'm saying that correctly, who the Khmer put to death by the gazillions. Pick your genocide. Pick your hate-based prejudice. And it has no place in the heart of those who follow Jesus. Zero, zilch, none. Amen. Hey, amen. Sherry and I had the privilege last uh, summer of taking a sabbatical. It continues in my life to pay dividends. Part of the activities on the sabbatical charged by the elders was to, uh, to tour the civil rights trail. Now the civil rights trail sounds more formal than it is, uh, it is just a self-guided auto tour through the South into the Midwest, up North. If you wanted to know the sites that you could visit on the civil rights tour, it's easy to find, Google it. There's a website out there, civil rights tour. And so we pieced together the places that we wanted to stop along the civil rights trail and made our way from Southern Louisiana into Washington, DC. Took us about seven or eight days as I remember it. One of the most impactful places to stop was Birmingham, Alabama. And I will, I'll take this opportunity to say, I think Alabama is handling the racial hate history in their state really well these days. I'm not saying it's perfect, but the Montgomery, Selma and Birmingham um, public markers and parks admitting and lamenting the role they played is really powerful and well done. So we stopped in Birmingham at Kelly Ingram Park. These are pictures from Kelly Ingram Park. Kelly Ingram Park was uh, made famous because Kelly Ingram is at the corner of 16th Street, some street I can't remember. But 16th Street Baptist Church was the church where four little African-American girls lost their lives in 1963. A bomb went off when they were in the restroom. It went off outdoor, outside the, the restroom um, 
in the church. They were getting ready to go to worship. They lost their lives. Right across from there is a park. It's four acres in size. Glowing Bible Church's campus is four acres to give you a feel. It's downtown in the heart of Birmingham and they would stage marches. They would get ready in this park and then they would march into the city, uh, the civil rights workers. Well, in May of 1963, rather famously, the governor of Alabama turned dogs and hoses loose, fire hoses, not on adults, but on junior and senior high students from the local schools. The civil rights workers thought, well, there's no way that the governor of Alabama, that the local police and fire department will do to children what they've been doing to adults. And so these kids, these kids skipped class, made their way to Kelly Ingram Park. They're peacefully protesting when the police show up with dogs and the, fire, and, the, and the fire captains show up with hoses and they turn them loose. And so in Kelly Ingram Park, uh, back up Jerry, maybe a couple pictures. There are these life-size reliefs up there top uh, right is, a, post, is a, a relief. And then bottom middle, you walk through the park and there's this little trail and they've, in life-size release, you actually walk between dogs and um, of these statues. And then there are placards around the park that explain what happened in May, 1963. So you'd walk through the dogs, you get this feel. But that's not all. There are senior high age, high schoolers, that volunteer their time and they wear little vests and they have pins and, and they're, they're working, they're volunteering and they stand around, they greet the visitors at the park and they tell you about what went on at each and what these, it, it's, it's really powerful to be told or educated by high schoolers. Uh, you know, the, the children basically of the children who suffered in 1963 at the hands of the Alabama governors uh, and municipal authorities. So the last uh, marker we stopped at was uh, a young woman who was a junior in the local high school, uh, an African-American uh, female. And, and I said, well, why is this marker dedicated to the Holocaust victims and survivors? She said, quote, because it's not really a black white issue. It's not that simple. It's a hate issue. Pick your genocide, pick your pride, pick your race-based arrogance. She goes, it's not, it's not simply the state of Alabama, she said. It's a global issue. It's happening in Northern China. The Uyghur people are getting shipped off to camps for re-education. It's an issue of hate. People of God, based on the authority of scripture, hate has no place in our heart. Prejudice has no place in our hearts. Racism has no place. Why? Because God so loved the world. The world. Red and yellow, black and white, come on. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves all the people of the world. And the throne of God will be surrounded by men and women 
who love every tribe, nation, and language group. Unfortunately, some have historically confused God's choosing Israel as we, and requiring them to live separated from other nations as an affirmation of racism. Think with me, okay? Think with me. That was basically the first century Jewish take on reality. The basis on which they looked down their noses at Samaritans. However, God's selection of Israel was not based upon physical attributes or cultural heritage. Work with me here on this, think with me. You know, when Western Europeans colonialized Rwanda, they brought with them race-based perspectives and they delineated between Hutu and Tutsi tribes. They brought with them the perspective, well, that preferred is a narrower nose and a broader nose is lesser preferred. Tutsi had the broader nose. And lighter skin colors preferred over darker skin color. They brought with them the, the judgment based on exterior character elements or um, physical elements. That is not the basis on which God chose Abram. Follow me here. This matters. Southern slave owners use this argument. God pursued a pagan idolater man, one man, Abram. He was a moon worshiper. Picture in your mind's eye what's on the top of every mosque. Abram, according to Joshua, was a moon worshiper and God plucks him out and says, I will quote, bless every people group in the world through one man. Never mind that that one man had much darker skin color than I had. Genesis chapter 12, verse three, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. You'll have descendants more numerous than the stars of the sky, the sand of the seashore. I'm gonna bless everyone through your family. But somehow Israel worked that into an ethnic pride that, that fueled a prejudice, that fueled a hatred. We see clearly in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus making this reality plain that hate has no place in the kingdom. And from our New Testament perspective, we know that God's purposes in keeping Israel separate from other nations was not an affirmation of Israel's racial superiority, but rather a means to bringing a Messiah through the family of one man. Huge difference. Unfortunately, Israel failed to keep the law of God, which created hostility with other nations. If Israel had kept the law, a law which included loving God and loving your neighbor, then they would have stayed in right standing with God and had good relationships. They would have been a light to the nations as they were meant to be. Instead, they did not keep the law. They forfeited the promised land. Assyrians pushed in, Babylonians pushed in, put the covenant in jeopardy, but God in his sovereignty and love for all of humanity brought the Messiah despite their disobedience. 
Perhaps one of the most telling moments in Israel's history is God's rebuke of a prophet named Jonah who refused to go to a pagan nation of Nineveh, city of Nineveh, and preach to them. Well, God rebukes Jonah and shows mercy towards Nineveh when they do in fact repent. God so loved the world. One implication of the good news of the gospel is that the dividing wall of hostility that grew up between Jews and Gentiles was destroyed through the ministry of Jesus Christ. That wall has been torn down. We know that God does not play favorites. I'm afraid that some in the church have viewed God's selection of Israel as kind of that nightmarish cosmic kickball selection. Did you do this in elementary school where you choose up teams and somebody always gets left out? Like God's choosing up teams, no. God so loved the world. This means that all forms of racism are affronts to the work of Christ on the cross, antithetical to the gospel, contrary to the work of God's work in the world. And all those who have faith in Christ have been given in fact a ministry of reconciliation. We've been reconciled vertically with God, our creator, through faith in Christ and given a ministry of reconciliation one to another, tearing down the walls, the barriers culturally that might separate us. This means it's incumbent on Christians to expose the evil deeds of darkness in the world and call people to embrace the multi-ethnic realities of heaven. Loving our neighbors is to transcend racial, cultural, and national boundaries. And exposing the evil deeds of darkness means lamenting the church's past failures. Exposing the evil deeds of darkness and then crying over. Did you know that the largest Christian denomination in America Did you know that the largest Christian denomination in America, the Southern Baptist denomination, is so named Southern because they got their start as they broke away from the then existing denomination in order to send out missionaries who own slaves. Wait, wait, did you hear that or did you already know it? The Southern Baptist denomination got its start in wanting, they organized around the desire to send out missionaries who own slaves. A sin for which they did not publicly repent until 1995. I find it startling. It's been a part, frankly, that statistic has been part of my growth over the last two years. I grew up Southern Baptist. When that washes over our soul, no public acknowledgement of the race-based hate that fueled the establishment of the largest Christian denomination in our nation, until 1995? And we ask, 
Is there works to still be done? The work of exposing and lamenting the participation in overt acts of racism, but also the passive failure to act, to stand up or stand against racism are sins that we must individually and collectively address. And Glenn Bible Church is committed in the years ahead to loving, regardless of race, culture, ethnicity, lamenting historic failures, of our Christian brothers and sisters to do so, we want to act as the Samaritan acted. We want to at personal expense, the, the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho was, had a, was a 17 mile, is a 17 mile road with a 3000 foot descent, a treacherous, uh, geographically perilous um, road to travel. It was actually called the blood road or the red road, because so much crime took place on it. So to see people who had been victimized along the road wasn't surprising. But when priest and Levite don't bother to, to stop, they feel no emotional pity. It's interesting, Luke notes, the Samaritan felt something for the victimization of the man he didn't even know, and then he stops to help, pays out of his own pocket, risks his own safety, because to stop on the blood road or the red road Put yourself at risk. We want to be at Glowing Bible Church like the Samaritans. We want to take the socially risky position to champion the cause of all races, creeds, and colors, right? All people, all ethnicities. And to do what it takes to overcome the bears that exist today. Amen. All pray for us. We'll respond in song. Would you bow your head with me? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We ask that you'd care for us as a people. I know that I've had the better part of two years to process this, and some may be processing the realities for the first time. Grow us. Grow us for your glory. Grow us for our own good. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.